Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw and people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. My name is Jason, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. And I am Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please. Today we're going to be covering a movie by uh, Japanese director Nobuhiko Obayashi, who, uh, as many people listening to this may have known, passed away on the 10th of April at age 82. He is notable on this podcast because we've covered his uh, seminal work, House, on this podcast a few times. It was a uh, frequent, it was actually an annual showing at the Trilon uh, while they were still open. Hopefully we can get one more in this year, uh, a favorite tradition of of us uh, and of many people, many of the Trilons, most ardent supporters, and uh, and I know John really loved showing it every year. So uh, we've taken a dive into a little bit of his backlog. This is one of his films uh, from later in his career, but not not the second half. Um, I'm going to let Aaron introduce it with a with a trademark Aaron summary, and then about 93 minutes in, we'll actually get to talking about the rest of the movie. Yeah, sounds good. Um, yes, we are taking a look at his motorbike, Her Island. Uh, Obayashi's 1986 film uh, tells the story of a motorcyclist, uh, Ko Hashimoto. Um, he's a young man. He works as a primarily uh, a courier for news publications. He'll get notes from journalists at the scene of, say, you know, car wrecks, things of that nature. And then he will kind of rush off to deliver those notes to um, kind of the main office so they can get the story out in a timely and efficient manner. Um, he's currently in the decline of a relationship with a young woman named uh, Fayumi uh, that he met after she put out an advertisement looking to ride a motorcycle, looking for someone who has a motorcycle that she could ride with. Um, he's kind of contemplating breaking up with her and on a countryside ride, thinking about this, he meets a young woman named Miyoko who... Um, lives on an island, is traveling through the area. She's a little bit more buttoned up in some ways, but she kind of takes to his uh, wilder side and has kind of a wilder side herself. And the two uh, soon start up a relationship. Um, that's my summary. How did I do? Incredible. Okay. Shorter. That was very good. Usual. Yeah, that was very good. Uh, a fine I summary. That. I like that quite a bit. It it um, it lingered a little bit in no, what he does for on. a living because I don't think that necessarily what he does for a living is the most important part. Yeah, I would have just focused on him being a career, uh, but I do understand it. It is a fun, um, it, like the, the movie is introduced through that lens, right? Uh, I think that before we get into like larger discussions about what this movie is about and sort of where the plot takes us, I think it's really important because it's one of the most, excuse me, most uh, striking and very fr- like your very first read of this movie. And one of the things I'll remember most strongly about it is uh, is the editing and the coloring of this film. It starts out uh, in to varying degrees, uh, color and black and white. And only at the like intro credits after he gets on his motorbike and uh, leaves the city. And on his way out of the city, we start to see that the the world come into color with starting with a stoplight. How did everybody else feel about that 
the way that 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 the movie like introduces color in this uh, through that scene particularly and in general how it uses color. Um, I really loved that, and it was sort of the visual motif established throughout the movie. Um, in fact, it's even textually called out right at at a certain point. Um, Co says that he has monochrome dreams. He says that most people dream in color, but I dream in black and white. And so we're sort of trained as the viewer to understand that when we're seeing something in black and white, it's because it bears some relation to his dreams and his dream state. Um, And that being said, uh, black and white and color fuse sort of in and out throughout this movie um, to to sort of obfuscate that connection. It often bleeds in from black and white into color when they're on their motorbike or vice versa. Um, and I really appreciated that and thought it was a really striking visual metaphor. Yeah. In a way that doesn't feel like a gimmick either. Um, you know, at, at the start, I kind of thought it was maybe going to be a little gimmicky. Um, I think, I think part of that is, uh, no disrespect to house as a film, but I think this is usually a film that people go to after watching house and they're expecting something house like, and it is kind of interesting in that manner. Um, but it is playing with a lot of filmmaking techniques in the same way that House is, while obviously, you know, being a bit more serious and grounded, right? So the first thing I thought, I, I see the film not only starts off in black and white, but it also starts off, uh, it's letterboxed, right? Um, and then that kind of, that view expands open to, to fill the full screen. You start seeing elements of color. I believe the first aspect of color uh, is a red stoplight that changes to a kind of yep. a green stoplight when he's on his motorcycle. And so the film actually starts really integrating this this change in color in really interesting ways that's more than just kind of a simple visual motif here and there. Um, it really worked for me. I don't know if it worked for everybody else as well. It worked for me in a really strong way because, like Harry said, it uh, it uses that to obfuscate. Like your, it gets into it's not clean, right? Right. It gets in larger conversations about like things that that uh, befuddled me about the movie in a really like charming way, but. They use that uh, color to monochrome thing like they set out the rules. As a film goer, you should be able to understand that black and white, it's a dream. Color, it's real life. It's it's present, you know, present and past memories and dreams, etc. But they don't stick to that often, right? Like sometimes part of the screen will be in color, uh, like this uh, beautiful tunnel, like fuzzy uh, radial view is in color at the center of the screen. And then maybe the edges are blurred in black and white. And it's sort of like, it didn't just play with me as a viewer, but as like that, that's part of the character, right? Is that they're either lost in dreams or lost in emotion, lost in memory just for a moment. And it sticks, it like plays with that through to the end of the movie to where like, I didn't rely on it anymore as a narrative device by the end of the movie. Cody, I think you're still muted. Uh, unless you decided you didn't have something to say. Oh no. Yeah. I was still muted. Um, technology is wild. Y'all. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a pretty important shift that the movie takes. Um, the, and it, it, it's not long before we see the rapid fire changing of monochrome to, uh, color picture, um, that blurring of the line or rather the blending of dream and reality, uh, early on, I, I feel like I, that's really important. And it is something that you don't, you, that you aren't cognizantly paying attention to. Whereas, I mean, I'm, Sure, I maybe speak for some of you guys here that like I'm. I went in. This is my only other uh, Obayashi beyond um, Haosu that I've seen. So I was coming in with a certain expectation. I feel like a lot of the same stylistic energy was present here, but concentrated into 
you know, a few, like a few visual motifs instead of several, a few, you know, characters, uh, a few primary characters rather than several. Um, and I don't know, I, I loved it. It was, it was great. I'm rambling now. Uh, yeah, the, you said a, a lot of really good stuff there that I want to um, sort of drill into. Um, first of all, Jason, what you said about using that visual motif to obfuscate, it, it, that really worked for me and it really coincides with or complements one of uh, Obayashi's main sort of directorial um, sensibilities or motifs. Not that I'm an expert by any means. Like we said, I think this is also my second Obayashi. Um, I think that, that there's a real sense in which his approach to filmmaking is already doing a lot of the work of the visual metaphor, which is to say that in a sort of meta-modernist sense, which I would not to be too pretentious, but I would characterize him as very much a meta-modernist, very much interested in um, in exploring what modernism is and what it looks like and what it does to the human condition. Um, he is already making in all of his films the distinction between dream and reality, between the sort of uh, self-definitional fantasy space of the idealized self and the self that exists in reality, obfuscated. There is no major difference between those things. This is the most movie movie that you'll ever see, right? These are so self-consciously, self-depictedly movie characters. Uh, even Ko's lifestyle itself is fundamentally a performance. It's a performance of a certain type of biker lifestyle, the sort of classic lifestyle that, that we think of when we think of um, bikers. I mean, he's a Scorpio Rising character, essentially. Um, that was very fascinating to me. Um, go ahead, Aaron. I was just going to say that a lot of what you're I was planning on bringing up Wild at Heart later uh, and kind of David exactly. Lynch in general yep. and his his idea uh, and how he uses the concept of dreams in his films. Right. Fan, like, fantastic I think I've gone analogy. on this rant, but David Lynch, you know, is not ever solely concerned with dreams as like a dream space and is not solely concerned with dreams as like an aspiration. He's concerned with where those two things intersect, um, where well, and, and where, where our, our where our unconscious kind of meets our conscious uh, desires right and this film is not really interested in like dreams dreams you know like falling asleep dreams uh despite the fact that that that's part of maybe the monologue at the beginning it is much more concerned about uh you know what people want out of life what fulfills them what they think fulfills them uh and kind of the 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 way that a lot of people um you know try and kind of put that behind them and the way that this main character maybe tries to chase it down from time to time uh, I'll let you go in a, a second, Cody. Sorry. Uh, two things you said that that really spoke to me, um, which is, first of all, not only is, is David Lynch, like Obayashi, not particularly only ever interested in non-dreams, but, but there's something... Um, there's something ov almost trite to them about suggesting that there is a difference at all. Uh, I think like David Lynch himself, one of the things that I that speaks to me most about Obayashi is his fundamental understanding that all film is dream right that like he is he is depicting a fantasy universe before he even starts like everything that's within the frame of a camera is already a fantastical imagined space and so you are depicting a, a projection of reality and you have to understand that as a starting point i think that this movie really fundamentally does understand that as a starting point and therefore is about uh framing like you said bringing into focus uh the aspirational 
and the self-defining and the self-actualizing, what we want, how we want to feel about ourselves and how we want to depict ourselves uh, as sort of fundamentally a part of the human condition. And I think that even, that even sorry, this is my last thing, uh, it speaks to how this movie thinks about dreams themselves as dreams being more mundane than the reality depicted here, where oftentimes the, the black and white that we see is the mundane and it becomes... Uh, full color when Ko feels more alive and he feels more alive in the more fantastic spaces like the island where he says he's most alive. There's even a sense that dreams themselves aren't what we think of when we think of dreams uh, in the conventional sense. Yeah. Um, I like that a lot. And I think my, my take on that is very like somewhat similar to yours, Harry, in that like the, and I think all of us have sort of said it uh, and understand it at this point that it, 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 right, it isn't so much the the dreams we have when we sleep, but the device of dreams is one of a few different ways this movie um, embeds us in this um, this fantastical world. And we see it later on. The movie isn't really shy about it. Um, the like we said, the kind of the fluidity between reality and what we understand to be this um, you know th- this dream this dreamscape um and this also sort of uh transience with uh with the existence of these characters um literally uh the uh, equating things like their relationship their romance um just the nature of the two of them together to something natural like the wind um saying that you know by the end i am the island she is the island i am her she is the motorbike etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah Everybody here is getting at a thing that I like. I knew I loved about Obayashi uh, from just watching House, but it was hard in some ways to like imagine that same ethos, that same um, style applied to other films, right? To, p- applied to other stories because House is uh, famously a story written as almost, almost. I think he considered it co-written by his daughter, uh, and just with his influence, his desire to make an anti-war film embedded within that, but. This movie in particular, um, being again, my second Obayashi film, hopefully not last, but it's definitely like, it was a a new way for me to think of those, of that touch and how it's deployed. Uh, we've, we talked a little bit about earlier about how, like what Obayashi is saying in a lot of his movies, specifically with the style, not just with the stories, but with the style that he takes, uh, is that dreams and reality are, are one in the same, right? They're not levels upon which like we exist as humans they're not uh layers to unpack in a story and that like fantasy is just our desires made real right they're uh they're our our wants and desires when we tell stories like these that's like what we're saying about what we want our our fantasies are just i don't know if i'm expressing this in a in a in a conscionable like responsible way but it get really like it, I compared it unavoidably a lot to house for those same reasons, because it is like, it's very much a movie that toys a little bit with the concept of what's like we were talking about with use of color and some of the editing, what toys or toys with the concept of like, what's real and what's not, what you can believe, what can you believe? What can you trust? What can't you? And ultimately with both of the movies that I've seen of his, he's just saying it doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? They are one in the same thing and you're watching them. Yeah, and that that kind of impacts some of the the characters too. I mean, similar similarly to House, which has characters that are named, you know, gorgeous. Uh, the 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 heavier character is named Mac for which reason again? I'm trying to remember. 
Oh, because she has a large stomach. Um, you know, the characters in this aren't, you know, they aren't that level, right? But, um, you know, when, when we're taking a look at uh, uh, Kohashimoto, kind of the, the main male character in this, um, a lot of the characters in this film kind of represent different aspects of his aspirations for his future, right? Um, part of the reason that he wants to leave Fuyumi at the beginning of the film and that he eventually um, kind of takes a liking to Miyoko is that they represent different aspects of how he deals with uh, kind of his current, you know, his, his desire to move away from a docile life, right? Like he's working not like a, you know, an office job, but he's working kind of a boring job in the city that does, you know, integrate part of his love for motorcycles. Um, but, you know, you get the feeling that when he goes out on long uh, trips out in the countryside that he's looking for something more. He's looking for kind of a bit more of like an unchained lifestyle, right? And at the beginning of the film, you know, his main problem with Fuyumi and that relationship is that he's, he thinks that she's too boring, right? Um, and so when he meets Miyoko, she is a person who kind of represents uh, the kind of life that he wants to lead in the future, right? Um, which is, I don't think necessarily to a detriment of those characters. I think in maybe a worse film, that would be a bad thing is it, it's kind of using these these characters as a relatively shallow way to to make a point. But I think that this movie handles it pretty well. Well, in classic Obayashi fashion, it's framed. It's explicitly called out textually. This is a it's a flashback. This whole movie is a flashback being recited by Ko from some point in the future. Uh, it's him reminiscing about the summer of romance in his life, and so we get the feeling, or should get the feeling, that this is explicitly um, an interiority movie. That uh, Ko is not only the main character; he is the POV character. He is the lens through which we're seeing this movie. Um, there are, there are several sort of lenses on lenses within this movie, right? Which is uh, where I wanted to go with what Jason had said, uh, which Jason, I think you characterized a lot of what Obayashi is doing well. Um, I think we're all characterizing it really well, not to just pat ourselves on the back. But um, the one disagreement I guess I have with what you're saying is that I don't know that it's necessarily about obfuscating dreams and reality uh, in reality or all told. I think it's about explicitly reminding us that there is no reality within film. Um, I think that he is very, very interested in reminding us that we're seeing everything we're seeing through a camera or through Ko's eyes or through a uh, romantic or mythic archetype um, that this is, a, that this is a story. I think that all of Obayashi's characters in both of the films that I've seen of his so far, uh, Aaron, to speak to your point, absolutely um, capture that. These are, these are archetypes, right? They're, they're, stand-ins for ideas and concepts we're not supposed to see ko uh as a human we're supposed to see him as a motorbike <laughs> like literally um and this is a movie that is both utilizing that that approach and it's a movie about that approach and about what that approach is and and how it might be fundamental to the human experience of love and mourning and self-definition um, sort of writ large. And that's why it's sort of a perfect theme for Obayashi to be working in, in my opinion. Sorry, I had the bad muting discipline there. Uh, I love that you brought that up because it allows me to dive a little bit into the a little cell of a point that I want to make. Uh, the beginning of this movie is very like judderingly and harshly edited. Uh, there are many points at which like in the middle of what could be like a continuous cut, he decides to just remove like the meat of the shot 
uh, for yes, the yes. book ending pieces, right? It's, it's beautiful. Um, where like, I mean, for example, near the beginning, uh, when the, when, uh, Fuyumi's brother, uh, comes up to him and is threatening, uh, Ko based on the basis of like, you better take care of my sister. Don't hurt her. Don't do any harm, that kind of stuff. He like decks Ko and, uh, while he's like wiping his chin in that tough guy way, just like snap, he's turned around and he's walking away. Like the point is made, the action has been done and we're going to move on with the scene. And it's, I think it, it's serving what you're saying, Harry, which I hadn't thought of before, uh, of like, he wants us to know that we're make, that we're watching a movie. You cannot see that and think and get lost in that moment, right? You are seeing the edit. It's about pulling uh, you out. Exactly. Exactly. Obayashi himself edited this movie. It's one of few movies that he act of his, that he actually edited himself. And that shows if you watch house as well, because that literally, it does that for, you know, the whole hour and 40 minutes or whatever that movie is. Uh, almost every shot is cut that way where it's just wild uh, unpredictable. It's 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 a lot of fun to watch. But what I wanted to say about this movie and how it uses that a little bit differently is eventually it abandons that and becomes much more conventionally edited. I don't know if you noticed, but by the time that he visits uh, Mia's island, it is it's almost shot like like a like a rom com, like a like an American rom com where it's very like uh, very lovingly like the camera's caressing every shot and like ev like you see everybody's smiling faces and stuff it's not harsh at all uh, and i think what he's doing in that moment is without losing that like subjectivity without wanting us to see and know that it's still a film he's like showing he's it was sort of making explicit making over overtures at the point that like you're supposed to be falling in love with these characters too. You're supposed to be like joining them in happiness, in sorrow, in their newfound love, etc. All that bullshit. Uh, but still, but by the end of the movie, he comes back to it. He comes back to the harsh edits and showing you that it's a film again, and like a lot of the really uh, fun stuff that he does to put between your your eyes and your understanding of the movie. I just found it interesting that he does dip, and it was noticeable to me. It's slow, but I I, I picked up on it that he does dip out of that into a more conventional editing style partway through. I would say maybe like thirty five minutes in. Yeah, I mean he's he's playing with you know more conventional uh, you know genre motifs right like i we were watching and we brought up uh, i'm gonna do it twice in one episode but we brought up twin peaks season one right like that this totally feels like twin peaks soap opera in the middle yes. um because it wants you to take you on that journey with these characters you know this is a a film that every single aspect of this filmmaking is about delivering this this core central point um, and kind of even tying it back to the discussion about the characters, um, I, I got to say, this is kind of like a larger point, but I used to be a little more critical of that when I was watching films. Um, I think there's still something, you know, there's still criticisms to be made uh, specifically around, you know, female characters or, or non-white characters, especially in a lot of like American movies um, about characters that are just there to make a point. But as I kind of keep watching more films, I kind of find myself siding on the side of every single thing in a film driving towards the point that the film is making. And I guess I'm more forgiving of that than I used to be, um, not to derail there. But I, I don't know. I, I thought about that a lot when the film was over. Um, ah, shoot, I can't remember what I was going to say. But I, I like that point. Um, I, I am sympathetic to both of your opinions there, I, su I suppose. I mean... Um, I, I think it, it a lot of it depends on the the point that the 
the film is going for and what kind of film it is, I suppose. Um, oh, the point, the thing I was going to say is that you brought up David Lynch. They're both doing that exact thing that you described. They're doing it to, to pretty pointedly different and interesting um, effects, in my opinion. Uh, to me, the the point of the soap opera-ism in Twin Peaks is fundamentally uh, deconstructive and deeply subversive right it's it's about you he is putting us in a certain framework and frame of mind so that he can change that framework so that not only will you start to see twin peaks differently although you had seen it through a certain framework that americana classic small town uh loving people framework that that we're so accustomed to being uh americans but then you will also have to view that that frame itself differently when you see it in other things like you can't watch twin peaks and then watch something americana the same way again twin peaks follows you no but i think obiashi wants to do the same thing with his classical framing here but toward a different end where he's not necessarily interested in subverting or deconstructing that framework so much as he is making you deconstruct it in a different way in that you're just supposed to centralize it and think about it as more fundamental to, to what you're thinking about and why. And for instance, who you are as a person, I think that these movies to me are, are very much about making you acknowledge, confront and reconcile with the lenses in your life, the ways that you're thinking about yourself and how those things mediate your experiences with reality um, and I think that this is a movie that is about that in terms of coming of age and love and who you are and want to be as a person um, in a really fascinating way and in a way that uses a lot of the same techniques that Lynch did uh, in Twin Peaks. Uh, yeah, you, the, what you're saying about centralizing uh, that, like the, the whole point of his style and of the way that he creates characters is making me want to scooch into a discussion of characters. Uh, but Cody's got his hand up and I want to make sure we haven't missed any point he's got to make. Oh, sure. The uh, piggybacking purely off of the, the Twin Peaks parallels, which I'm seeing and thinking about more and more just as you guys brought them up. Um, the uh, just like male characters as a collection of tropes um based off of images you know like the uh the leather jacket and the motorcycle that ko is wearing being manifestations of this sort of machismo bravado uh reckless irresponsibility that comes with uh i guess classically riding a motorbike um women uh being the product of quote unquote their creator um and this movie very pointedly makes that uh distinction with fuyumi um, as she kind of passes between partners and even to the point where uh, we're meeting up at the same bar uh, every like 30 minutes, um, like how in Twin Peaks, they, we, we just kind of end every episode at that same, um, I'm forgetting the name of it, um, but it's not that important. Uh, I think that was, in this movie, I think it's Michiksa or, or something Michikusa. like that. Michikusa. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. I meant the name uh, of the one in Twin Peaks, but yes, you're absolutely ah, right. That, is it the, not the double R, the bang, the bang bang bar? The bang bang. Big, bang, yeah, bang, the bang bar. bang. Uh, so anyway, yeah, uh, bang, bang, bingo. Um, then that I think is a good turn for talking about the characters and the ways that they're built in this movie. Uh, 
because like you said, Cody, they're like, it builds off of that stereotype of male machismo in uh, like biker gang culture, specifically very, it's more um, Western influence than I almost anticipated it to be hearing that it was a movie about a guy who's, who's, you know, sort of uh, way into motorbikes kind of thing. I thought it was going to lean more toward the like Godspeed, you black emperor and Akira side of like Japanese oh, biker culture. Yeah, it was way more um, like James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause than it was this. And I think that's pointed like to a very particular purpose. Uh, but like, regardless of the, uh, the the trope, the genre that that character lives in or any of the characters around him, it uh, builds that character using those tropes, right? But then likes to, and I don't want to use the word subvert because it uh, raised Harry's hackles a little bit. And I think rightly so, but it like, play i keep coming back to the term plays with even though it's not a very smart term to use it plays with those uh by like making him i guess there's i'm trying to get it that there's a lot of man ass in this movie like he is stripped nude <laughs> most of this movie and like with a not always with a very like feminine gaze or like sexual gaze toward him it's way more ogling of female bodies than male bodies but like almost equivalent amounts of nudity in the, in terms of who's naked on screen at any given time. But no dong. when he's not when, zero dong, they're, they're, <laughs> absolutely no wang uh, outside of um, when he's nude, he's either in this movie, he's either nude or he's uh, dressed up in like tough guy, biker clothes, he's wearing or a leather he's wearing, jacket or he's wearing traditional. Um, I've seen everybody's hands up now, <laughs> or he's wearing traditional like Japanese uh, celebratory and uh, like memorial outfits. Right. Uh, I just find it interesting that like through wardrobe, he was able to, I, I'm sure that like Nobuhiko Obayashi wasn't the one to pick out the wardrobes. I'm sure that he had a whole staff picking that, but like on screen it's depicted like his whole character is sort of uh, guided by what he's wearing, how he's presenting to the world, uh, and sort of what he's what he's getting out of any interaction with with the people around him. Uh, some Cody, stop me before I keep going. Uh, <laughs> temporarily, sure. Um, the um, the ogling uh, that you mentioned, I think, is 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 right on. Um, the bathhouse sequence is one that I like for a number of reasons. Um, the cinematography, the black and white cinematography, is gorgeous. The steam rising. Um, sets uh, a really fascinating, beautiful stage. Um, the camera does certainly ogle uh, Miyoko, but she, it's this also, and I, I don't want to use the term subversion either because I'm not convinced it's that, and I haven't really digested this uh, appropriately, but there is maybe something to the fact that, um, that Obayashi chose in this sequence for her to be more, she, she's, not, um, she's not modest in the same way that Ko is modest, um, right. you know, he, he, he come, you know, he assumes the, he's the only man in the bathhouse. And once he knows that, that, uh, Miyoko is there too, he's very, uh, protective of his nudity. Whereas, you know, his, his, tr after having his true self, you know, that leather jacket, the, the white skin tight t-shirt, having shed those, he's left bare and that leaves him more vulnerable. Um, right. Right. She's, she's not, uh super coquettish in that scene either like you said she's not very modest she's more like playful and like I, I guess built out as a character than just a sex object for that moment anyway i'm not defending like just the gratuitous use of female nudity in the film or at least in this scene but it like it feels like it has a reason by the scenes by the time the scene's done right yeah i'll defend it fuck it yeah i don't think it's yeah, gratuitous it at too, all bro. yeah it's great it's great it works. can we all get behind defending 
nudity. Yes, in I in general. Can yes, I, I'm a fan. Can I, white can I get a hell, man. Can I get a hell yeah for nudity in the group chat? <laughs> hell yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, I thought that when you said there's a lot of man ass in this movie, you were you were using it. You were being sort of cute and using it in both terms. In that, Co also shows his ass a lot in this movie. Literally, he he got his <laughs> ass out right. Oh, if like, only. There, there's there's like a uh, which is why I think you guys sort of rankled at the idea of using the word subversive. But there is a sense in which. Even if I don't think that ultimately the point of a movie like this is to subvert uh, tropes or or archetypes and make you force you to think them of them differently, the way Twin Peaks strives toward it, it is making you confront them, or at least it's making its characters confront them as a part of the process of their character arcs. Right, like a lot of Ko's uh, character arc in this movie is about confronting the ways in which he is not the way he wants to be. Right. And and he is not the person that he's pretending to be and the ways in which none of us can be the ways we want to be. There's a really fascinating um, this might be skipping ahead a, a few conversation points, but there's sort of a fascinating death drive that's happening here uh, with both the main characters. Uh, and this movie is really interested in exploring where that death drive comes from. Um, these are these are people who want to be experiences, right? Uh, Cole wants to be a motorbike. Uh, she wants to be uh, an island, uh, and those are not achievable in the long term. And I think that this is a movie that's really interested in the the um, agonies of the human experience that you can't be the person you want to be all the time because you have to do things like have your ass out, <laughs> like liter like literally like use the bathroom and uh, go to bathhouses and be in places where you can't perceive yourself in the context in which you want to be perceived. You, you know, you can't always be searching for the wind in that romantic sense. Uh, this is, this is a movie that's obsessed in my opinion with exploring the, uh, the pain of that uh, truth of, humanity and what it does to us that we have to confront and think about that pain and what it does to what we want. Yeah. I, going back a little bit to the, the idea of a, you know, deconstructing um, Harry's going to groan at this reference, but I, I kind of, I've been thinking about this movie since I finished watching it um, in comparison to uh, a series of two books that one of my favorite authors, uh, Gene Wolfe wrote. It, it's about knighthood and kind of never heard of him. I have not. Yeah, I've never brought this up specifically to you very annoyingly in group chats before. Um, but uh, he's one of my favorite authors and he his best works do what this movie does, where it's not I wouldn't call this movie a deconstruction, but like a secret of of, you know, filmmaking and writing great books and what have you is that if you portray a story, uh, an experience, if you portray it authentically and with a lot of care, the elements that kind of deserve to be deconstructed will kind of naturally deconstruct themselves, right? If you portray, uh, you know, a, a male character who is kind of overly concerned with self-image and finding a future that fits in with his lifestyle, uh, and, and you portray his actions authentically and truly, you don't need to full-on deconstruct them because that will kind of happen uh, as a result of showing those, those, you know, experiences and those events in the story. And I think this movie does that really well. I wouldn't call this like a weird, you know, like a uh, meta commentary on, you know, kind of James Dean uh, style, you know, maybe even American style, um, 
you know, biker culture and the idea of, of riding on the road, experiencing freedom. Um, it's a movie that is interested in those things, but it kind of critiques itself uh, as the film goes on and you understand this character's flaws. Uh, really, really great point, Aaron. <laughs> just, to, just to say, uh, I'm not annoyed by that at all. I think that that was very well said. That's good. You uh, will read Gene Wolfe now. Thank you. Everybody listening yep, to this, def- Definitely going to do that. Uh, can we talk about how there is a literal like modern day knights on horseback jousting bro that, that's what made movie. me think of, that's what made me think of those books to be honest is you it's time to would not have noticed that oh uh yeah maybe maybe we should like take a step back and talk about how this movie fucking kicks ass uh left and right yes with both fucking cheeks it is uh from the very get-go like it is very fun and like we haven't talked much about how it's just very fun to watch that's honestly i mean like baseline I hate to say this, but baseline Nobuyoko Abayashi at this point, it's probably going to get like easy a three, three, five for me, uh, for on, on like a five scale, uh, just because I know that he's really good at making movies and they're always very fun to watch. Uh, anything above that is like what I'm able to find in the movie that, that goes about that, like makes a good point. Right. Or that makes like realizes, um, some, uh, overarching statement that he wants to make. And this movie I think does that. Uh, in different ways than House and and in some better ways. Uh, but like at the very ground level, this is just a really fun movie to watch. It's very colorful. It's very playful. It's very like all of the facial expressions of this movie, particularly from the from the two leads. Well, the lead character or the main character and then one of the and then uh, Mia, who ends up becoming a main character. Um, it's just like Harry, you said that it was like a movie uh, for, I forget the phrasing you use, but basically it's a movie ass movie, um, for people who love watching movies in like a way that doesn't want you to forget that it's literally, that it's a movie, right? Uh, I'll, uh, yeah, can- I'll pull out a, uh, I'll pull out an Aaron reference to match, uh, his reference. Um, it's like, it's like what Quentin Tarantino said when he said that it's the type of movie that people in movies would go to see. It's like a super movie. The, the, the name, his motorbike, her Island is like a perfect fake marquee. You know what I mean? Like, oh, what are you going yeah. to see tonight? Oh, his motorbike, her island, playing down at the cinema. I hear Pauline Kale gave it a five out of five. Yeah. I will. I'm going to check to see if she reviewed this. I bet she did not. No, she didn't. I, I mean, it, it, we talked a little bit before we started recording about how little there is on the internet about this movie. Uh, there, there are maybe a, I don't know, handful of like noteworthy reviews on Letterboxd, very, very little on the internet, on, on, you know, the, just do a Google search and literally one line about the film itself on Wikipedia, and then just a list of uh, awards it won at a local or a Japanese awards ceremony. Um, can you can you imagine if all of his movies are as good as this one is? That that being all, like he made what 20, 30 movies over the course of his career. The most recent of which came out last year. I found out, uh, and there's equally little about that on the internet. Um, I do want to dive more into what he's watching, the, like or to what he made, uh, because it is just very enjoyable to put on one of these movies and watch it. You don't find yourself distracted. Uh, you know, it's because you be on that phone that I keep watching movies sometimes. And like, I will find myself tuned out from them. Like I sort of become smarter than them in a moment and figure that I can go without watching the screen for 15 seconds and not miss much. This movie demands a whole lot of that and uh, a whole lot of you just paying attention uh, to really know what's going on with the story, but not in a way that makes you feel like, like you're beholden to it, I guess. It's a very special space that both Nobuhiko Obayashi movies I've seen put me in that is very hard to imagine like 
a lot of other filmmakers. The only other one that came to mind when I was thinking about that was um, Juzo Itami, uh, Tempopo and uh, not Working Girl, but I'm for uh, a taxing woman. Uh, both of those movies that I've seen from Itami are just very much that way, where they're very fun and yet also have something at their heart that's that's special. Uh, yeah, I I feel like I've got so much to say about this movie now, but I'll try to be really fast. Just like on a purely experiential level, I feel very similarly. Um, the the artist I was going to shout out was maybe Seijin Suzuki, because this gave me a lot of uh, Tokyo Drifter vibes, especially early on with the song that plays over the top during that initial... Um, bike ride through the um, mountains or whatever when Ko's recollecting and he's on his uh, sort of sad heartbreak trip. Um, I feel very similar to you where just like in terms of like feeling uh, this, this was like an almost an unimpeachable experience for me, just like before I even got into analytically what it was about. It was just like, I watched this last night at like, like two in the morning or something just pulled up on my laptop. And like, by the time I was like half an hour in, I was I was so there for it in a way that that very few directors can like get me that quickly. It was like, I this is like fully what I'm here to experience. Um, and then, like you said, to, to pull in something that, that makes me um, think and, and reflect so differently and intimately on top of all that is really something special. Right. The fact that it's saying some stuff, sorry to jump in there when you've got your hand up, but uh, the fact that it's make, like making you think about the thing that you're seeing, presenting the thing and giving you like an interesting lens through which to see it while you're watching it. Uh, just, I again, I can put maybe two filmmakers in that camp. Otherwise, it's like it's one or the other, right? Somebody wants you to think about genre, uh, or somebody is showing you like exemplary genre. This is this is both. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is a a movie that is really fun to watch, or maybe not even fun, but it, it feels good to watch this movie at times, despite some of the more dramatic things that happen in this film. Um, there's so many locations and shots that are just so enjoyable to look at, uh, you know, not just the scenes of the countryside, you know, uh, the main character is kind of biking, uh, around the countryside in Japan, but also, you know, we talked about the bar that they return to over and over again, that bar, uh, despite, uh, having a staircase and no ramp, not being OSHA compliant. Um, it looks delightful, right? Like it's like the perfect kind of nighttime smoky bar with a band playing in the background. Um, you know, it, one thing that I got thinking about, uh, that's like a weird side thing is I, I love drinking beer out of little glasses in America. We always drink out of like pint glasses and in Japan, it is more common, uh, oftentimes to drink beer out of like little, you know, glasses about the third size of that. Um, and it's delightful, right? Like there's so much stuff in this movie that is enjoyable to watch. Um, it feels kind of poetic at times, right? Um, that like, even you before you start analyzing the film, it, it's just such a wonderful visual experience it reminded me of being in japan i went to japan i don't know if japan was here but i went to japan you guys know this? Uh, and Wait, a, what and a lot of it reminded me of that i uh, i don't have anything more sounds to say nice I just wanted to say that yeah love to go to japan you cut out so i i'm just going to keep talking about japan if that's okay the uh, like both I, I guess harry and aaron and i have both have all spoken about um just how comfy and like very nice to look at the movie is uh, I want to talk about its use of both in the plot and the uh, I guess in the not just in the narrative, but in the um, like in the in the watching experience, 
what part music plays? Because Harry, you talking about the uh, intro song that kicks us off and brings color back into the frame uh, is one of the like more striking uses of music in this movie. But like, I forgot until about three, three quarters of the way through that Ko himself is a music student uh, and and a biker punk. I, there's a lot going on there that I don't know if I was able to parse myself. Um, I want to I a lot of really good points were being brought up. First of all, yes, uh, Aaron Michikusa. I wrote in my actual Harry's notes that uh, Michikusa is the place that I want to like that's like heaven. That's like when I die, it's like, that's the place I want to go. It's actually kind of funny that, that this movie sort of um, structurally, artistically, thematically evoked that in me when, when that's so central to what the characters themselves want. But I was like, I want to be the experience of this movie. Like my idealized self is like the feeling that this movie is evoking in me, <laughs> which is, which is a really wild place to get because like, that's also what the characters are, are yearning for and searching for. And that, that feeling of like a vulnerable, um, like s- wistful yearning is so central to this movie. Um, the other thing I, I want to say that, that sort of gets into what you're talking about, Jason, and then we can get into it for real is that, um, when I approach a movie, um, I'm always, because I'm an analytical dickhead uh, who is alienated from my childlike wonder as a cynical adult, I'm always thinking like, okay, like reconcile the things that you're doing, right? Like when it, when a movie starts, I'm like, okay, you're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing this. Like your characters are talking this way. The music you're playing looks like this. The movie looks like this. Give me a reason why you're doing this and that will be a good movie. That's sort of my... Uh, rudimentary analytical approach to movie watching is like I'm looking for reasoning behind the artistic decisions that are being made, or if not Arthur, yeah, author reasoning, then at least something that I can justify. Um, and this movie does that structurally on a level that very, very few things do, in my opinion, where the ins and outs right down to the emotions evoked right down to the comfort that you guys uh, pointed out and uh, the the feeling that it evoked in me was completely justified by the artistic decisions it made. So there there's a oneness of art and theme here that is like really, really rare and exceptional in my opinion. And I think the soundtrack is a big part of that. So uh, we can talk about that now. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, the, the soundtrack certainly uh, adds to that. I think, you know, th- so there is a song that is used in the bar that is used two or three different times that kind of, uh, you know, changes over the course of the film. I think that's done nicely. There's one specific song on the soundtrack that's used when uh, Ko is out uh, smashing mirrors with a friend of his. They're they're driving by on their motorcycle. Bro, that's the song, right? That, that oh my song god, kicks ass. Um, it's it's really good. Uh, and I, I kind of get specifically with a lot of films that are doing somewhat, let's say, similar things to this. I I kind of get suspicious for a bit when those films become so pleasurable to watch that I kind of think like, okay, is, is this is this doing something here, right? Like, is this just trying to engage with my core senses? Um, and this film. It's I mean, it kind of ties back to what we talked about earlier, specifically with Jason talking about how, you know, the editing changes throughout the film. But this movie, you know, it's nice that there's a film that's kind of commenting on what it's doing and also just very much so delightful to watch. I guess it's like you you feel kind of guilty, maybe even for how enjoyable it is to watch at times. Maybe that's just me. Given given the ending, uh, especially. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) 
Jason, yeah, do, we, do we? Yeah, do we? Do we want to talk about more about not just like specific uses of music, but like the presence of music in this movie? Because, it, like I said, it goes beyond just the soundtrack. It goes into like some of the uh, one of the things that um that Co says. One of the lines that stuck with me, uh, maybe not enough to remember it verbatim, but enough for me to recall it was um that uh riding a motorcycle is the only thing he can't cheat his way out of. Like. Hell he yeah. is yep. he is a slacker he's a punk sort of uh, in many respects but maybe an overachieving one right uh but and, and i want to know like i guess i'm wondering if it's something that i missed or if it just didn't dive enough into like his interactions with music and what they say about his character and about his, like the a larger like i guess statement of the film like i guess the closest we get to the to um seeing his like the place of music in his life and him as a character is when, well, one, when he's for some reason, he strips to the nude to play a song for Mia over the phone. Uh, and then another, in another instance, it's revealed that like the song that, uh, Fuyuma, Fuyuma sings in, in, uh, Michikusa is one that he wrote with her lyrics. I don't know if I'm just like down a fun rabbit hole that doesn't have an end, but did anybody else find themselves curious about, about like the narrative place of music in this movie? Um, I think I have a justification for it in my reading of the movie, but I don't know that it's surpri- surprising or that it would necessarily um, satisfy what you're asking. So I think uh, I'd be interested to hear what everybody else thought too. I'll just say, I think it it kind of, you know, the fact that, that Ko and his friend both, play the guitar in the same manner. I think it's maybe a little not even satirical, right? But it's it's kind of funny, right? Like they're both young cool guys who take off their shirts a lot and drive around and and try and sleep with attractive women and they have their motorcycle and their leather jackets and the fact that they both play guitar and serenade women, you know, over the phone with it. I think that's that's I think that's somewhat intentional, right? Like there's the scene where Ko and uh Fiyumi kind of uh uh you know they're off driving on a, a motorcycle and then um Ko's friend drives by with the woman that he's with and they're both naked on the motorcycle and then it cuts to uh Ko trying to uh you know kind of proposition Fuyumi underneath a waterfall and his friend's just in the background just like playing an acoustic guitar to this other woman um this could be us but you playing yeah i don't think it's like entirely satirical but it is like a little humorous i think maybe I mean, it's all funny, right? I think everything in this movie is funny. I think it's supposed to be kind of funny and satirical on every level. And that's not that's not supposed to detract from its earnestness or what it's really doing to your real emotions, but it, that's an element of it, right? I know a lot um, of guys who uh, started playing guitar uh, to try and get more attractive. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's a, just a common thing. Just at me next time. That is not what this based. movie is is not saying, right? Like, that that's not what this movie is... Are, this movie is saying that that is an element of what music playing is, right? Like that's uh, there's a there's a weird uh, this is too far a stretch to go, right? But there's a weird fascism to music in this movie where like if if uh, the the motorbike is Ko's expression of self, then music is the way that he tries to impart that to others. I mean, like music is an artistic expression of who you are. Um, that was my reading of it, Jason, is that um, the music in this movie foregrounds self-expression and self-definition um, in a similar way to the the freedom yearning of the motorbike and the island do, except that music is fundamentally about communicating and sharing with other people. So we get to see how Ko tries to shape 
people like Fuyumi and later like um like uh Miyoko um at the same time that's what music is doing to me and then there's that great irony right in the second act where he is somewhat successful about drawing this out of Miyoko about making her sort of confront her own true self and then he starts to hate it or not hate it but or even resent it but he starts to fear it and that's sort of uh a fundamental betrayal of who he is that that is suggestive of a lot of things yeah, don't don't forget that another scene with music in it is when he travels to Miyoko's island and uh, her father is kind of leading a kind of, uh, I don't know what the correct term would be, but it's uh, it's kind of like a, a song, a chant in order to uh, kind of, the father says that it's to greet the dead. It's like one day a year, the dead are kind of with us. And this is a, a song in order to honor them and to greet them, right? And it's it's through that song, he also learns about Miyoko's life and who she is and kind of the the island that she's living on. I just want to say, uh, you know, kudos to Jason for trying to shoehorn in music as a way of uh, promoting the music podcast that he uh, helps to produce. Um, Listen to, to and subscribe to uh, Mintrax on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a review. We want to know how we're doing. You're going to drop the, you're going to drop good. the Trilove. Uh, you're going to drop the Trilove. Yeah, no, none on, of, uh, none of us have been on it. Yeah, none of us yeah, have been on up, that dude? podcast, which is I weird. Am, I guess I am fellow I am game under, uh, intern. The reason none of us have been on it is uh, Jason asked about music, and we all uh, had crickets for a response. So I don't fault him at all for that. Hey, this, this I would have been thrilled if they were crickets. This whole um, movie is basically the song "Jenny" by the Mountain Goats from All Hail West Texas. This whole nice. movie is basically that song. Uh, so if you like this movie, you should check out that song because it's really good. They mentioned Kawasaki's in it uh, and riding around with a with a girl you like a lot. It's great. Is, Music. Do you think Kawasaki paid in any part for this film? Like I don't know, if, man. But if this, this was an this American was the movie. Most I would assume that. advertising I have ever seen. Holy yeah. man! Did I want a Kawasaki motorcycle yes. after watching this movie? Is someone who is like totally uninterested in like american motorcycle culture at least like american like loud harley culture uh i would never own a motorcycle uh just because my every single person who loves me would would hate me if i started driving a motorcycle around uh but man it seems pretty fucking cool specifically to drive a kawasaki around the mountainside and just like go camping on the side of the road and shit well it does look pretty cool yeah it's like it's like that Triumph style bike or motorbike too, not just like uh, not you know like a Goldwing or anything with a big uh, visor, and it's not the you know uh, huge long handled Harley's. It's like that specific frame, that specific form against. And one of the scenes later in the movie where they're watching Mia like go too fast on the seven fifty cc across the mountainside, beautiful, and they're like they're like uh, prognosticating her death basically in that scene particularly uh like it just has seems so good it just has such a cool form factor like i i agree i i kept telling aaron we were watching this movie together earlier today uh i kept telling aaron like i really want to buy a motorcycle now or at least like at least like a 50 cc something like just something to get that experience of moving faster than you can on a bicycle but not like being shielded like by a car there's something inherently like I don't know, primal and really cool about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 you know, that's kind of what it's directly referencing, right? Like that is his outlet, his, his, you know, the feeling of freedom that he gets on a motorcycle, you know, 
that's kind of been what it has symbolized, not just in this film and in other Japanese films, but kind of in American culture as well. Um, you know, it is that feeling of freedom and like it, it's kind of true, right? Um, as much as I kind of hate a lot of that, specifically how it's been used from an advertising standpoint here in America. Um, but like, I think everybody can kind of relate to the at least sense of how cool it would be to, to drive around the mountains on a motorcycle. No other drivers in sight. Of course, it's like an unrealistic, uh, you know, situation, but um, it sounds amazing. Um, yeah, you said two things that really work. First, um, remember that Obayashi is a commercial director, so he is literally leveraging oh, that. Oh, shit, that's great. Oh, I forgot yeah, that. That ability to this uh he's like like literally he directed over three thousand commercials so when he wants you to want a motorcycle that is what he is doing literally directly in terms of advertising (laughs) uh he man's a monster he's incredible uh but also um aaron you brought up the idea that everybody you loved would hate you if you rode a motorcycle. And that is like precisely the second half of the motorcycle metaphor. And what makes it so specifically good in this movie is the sort of death drive behind motorcycles. I brought that up again. I think it's really central to what this movie's getting at, but like that motorcycles are hella dangerous, right? Like they're, they're terrifying and they will lead to, uh, an early demise, right? Like everybody kind of knows that even people who ride motorcycles, uh, there's a sense in which that's the trade. Um, is that, that like motorbikes represent this ultimate in, um, oh my God, I'm sorry. This is so distracting. Can we stop with the, uh, the, Discord? I need to turn that off. That's my Don't bad. Don't be distracted by Discord. You're, you're distracted by the fact that I'm trying to get people to watch the 2019 film Doolittle in our Discord? Is that I turned it off. 2020 for you? We, is we it can, 20? Okay, 2020. We can edit this this out. I'm, I'm, we no, this is staying in. Yeah, this is 100%. We, are, this, this is we have no choice have, but to leave hey, this hey, in the podcast. Hey, we are, we are showing our ass right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah by the way, we're thanks, true guys. film fans. We're true film fans. Do you guys want to watch Do Little later? You guys just immediately start making plans with your other friends over Discord. That's cool. That's fine. You're invited. You are one of those friends, my man. Yeah, you're in the Discord. You're, you saw the notifications. You saw the I was, message. I was distracted <laughs> I'm by so that. confused by this temper. Did Harry just try and thanks for the invite, Doolittle 2020? Uh, when you got the invite? <laughs> oh, no. No, I, mean, I was specifically. <laughs> I'm done. It's I'm, okay I'm to feel afraid. It's okay. So, one, one other thing that I want to say about. Uh, I, I loved where we went with discussing the music and then later about the symbology of, of like his his interest in motorcycles. Uh, one of the scenes that stuck out to me, and I was I went back to the film. Uh, spoiler: I have it on my computer. Um, I don't know if this movie is very commercially available anywhere, but uh, so I'm watching it, and I just went back um, while Aaron was talking because I don't really care about what he was saying. But I went back to find the exact quote: "His uh, when they're in Michikusa." Uh, and I'm going to butcher that pronunciation every time that I. I mean, I'm the only one who's been here who's been to Japan and. Uh, I'm going to butcher the You've been to Japan? Ah, oh, Jesus. Uh, but so, so, so Ko and his friend, I, f- I forget his friend's name, uh, are, are at the bar and, um, and he's sort of ribbing, uh, uh, Ko for like having been the one to write the music that Fuyumi's, uh, singing the lyrics of. Uh, and he's like, it's sentimental, just like you. And Ko says, uh, idiot, those things like that are meant to be treasured. And it's like a really like soft moment, really so like, very genuine sentimental moment that he's like not ashamed of in that like that line in specific is what got me thinking about how music is one of the things that despite he said that he can cheat his way through like when it matters to him when it actually is like 
when it's not just for person like uh when it's not just for professional gain or education like things matter to him right he's not uh, like just a punk he's not an irony bro he's like genuinely enjoying the thing it meant something to him and he's not hiding the fact that it was that he's sentimental about it even though like his ex is up there singing music that he wrote well and and his boredom and angst is not a manifestation of of disaffectedness entirely right it's it's about it's it's rawer than that it's about not knowing something about yourself and not sort of like knowing that you want something to be different and you want to be different yourself or live differently or have a different relationship or something without knowing what that is but that doesn't make you disaffected toward things it sort of gives you an edge which is what he has, right? Like there, there's an interesting sense in which like he, he cheats his way through things because he knows they're not what he wants. But you're right in that like the moment he finds something he thinks he wants, he, that's what his whole life is about, right? Is pursuing that. And that's the, the difference that you're pointing out. I think. Yes, um, I'm sorry. No, I, I had a no, I had trouble right. with my with my trackpad. Uh, it's It's exactly that, right? Like it's the, it's the, like not two halves, but concurrent parts of that character running together, right? At, at whatever cost, right? Which is the other part, which is like the, one of the big lines that stuck out to me was that when, uh, when Ko kind of betrays himself, when Miyoko is, um, is becoming a, a better cyclist than he is, or, or a truer cyclist in the, the sort of grand sense is that he tries to stop her because he has this vision, um, given to him by his exes, um, older brother that she's going to die on this motorcycle. And at, at some point he stops her after she goes on a, a motorcycle ride in the rain. And, and she says like, you're going to die if you keep doing this. And she says like, I love this motorbike and I would have no regrets. And like that, that really hones in on the, the truth behind that is that like, th- there's this death drive to the, to the sense that, um, we want to be the the people we want to be uh and not even necessarily people but like this experience like what we want is to embody this feeling fully and at whatever cost that may be to the point where it might be better to only live for one instant and like live exactly the in the the feeling that you want or like there's this terribly romantic notion that that's the truth of it right and like that that's what he didn't realize he was pursuing but was um and and then the the tragedy of this movie is that he sees that miyoko is now starting to be seduced by that same feeling but he has found it in miyoko and so he can't stand the idea that that it might be happening to her right is that like there there's that there's that really sweet like almost like greek tragedy irony to this movie that like he he was looking for like a almost a perfect death in in the like the like uh samurai spartan sense, sense. yeah um and then he finds this better alternative where he can feel fully alive and fully embodied on this island with miyoko but it's only the only reason she can evoke that in him is because she understands the same death drive that he used to have and right. like the more that she understands that and the more she becomes like him the further they drift apart because she drifts towards this ignominious end Right. It's it's a trope that's not like completely unfamiliar, right? Like somebody seeing in another a trait that they wish to possess, a desire that they have for themselves, and then resenting that that person is actualizing it in a way, right? She like 
she gets to she gets very it's almost like set up as hubris but very, only from his perspective that she wants to be able to ride the 750cc even though she's only got her 250cc license uh she wants to go fast and she wants to like uh take these curves way way too quickly and she would be willing to die for like something that she's passionate about a desire that she has to see herself fulfilled right satisfied um i'm gonna let you harry make one more point before i talk about the end of the movie yeah, I'm sorry. I think that this is that's a really good place to go from there, right? Uh, which is just to say that the whole hubris and, and jealousy thing, those elements are there. They're very familiar. They're complicated in this movie, right? Because his his jealousy and angst towards her is a manifestation of his uh, masculine insecurity, but it is also the the legitimized fear of her demise, and that legitimate fear of her death is really fascinating to me because it forces him to confront the ways he's not the way he thought he was that that his love of Miyoko actually has changed him and has made him a person who is more concerned about the future and preserving a love than living in that moment which is what makes it so tragic and and sort of poignant and and sad to me that like he is now realizing that actually what he wanted was this person was this island miyoko this experience with her uh and but the the reason she he wanted that in the first place was because she had possessed the same sort of um need for desire for an experience outside of boredom that he has and that's the same thing that's driving them away from one another right yeah i I think we've gotten where 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 I'd hoped we would with this, which is to talk about the end of the movie. I think we've set up enough of a lens, enough of a little kaleidoscope for people who have seen the movie as well and might be listening to um to know that like our our real point, like what we would actually say about the movie is about the end of the movie, which um uh just to set it up, so Ko and uh Miyoko are um now like happily in love, unrequited, not unrequited, but uh, uh no regrets they're 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 both like accomplished writers they're both fully in love they're both able to visit each other um and they're riding around on her island i think it's on her island uh and she, and they part ways to take two different paths realizing in a, in a monologue ko says that he realizes that their paths will diverge occasionally but that they are now the wind she is the the, the island he is the motorbike uh, they have like a, a great symbiosis of 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 character, right? Right. There. They've they've achieved that that ultimate that they were looking for, which is that they are they're like they're more and different than humans, right? Like they together when they're together like that riding, they are literally the wind, like literally the motorbike, literally the island. It's the sort of thing that only two people could do for one another who are in love is sort of the movie's idea. Yeah. Uh, so there's, so he has that monologue where he's explaining how they've like, they've impressed upon another one another enough. They have externalized their desires enough that they have become them. They've become each other, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very, it's a very beautiful monologue, uh, told over shots of them writing with again, that like colored, uh, tunnel vision where like the outer, outer trim of the film is still black and white, but the center is, is color and bright. Um, and he tells her, you go that way. I'll meet you at the, uh, diner up the way, um, or at the hotel up the way, whatever it is. And he gets there, he takes off his helmet. She's not there, sits down. And here's a couple of, uh, of other like gruff looking characters saying, man, I just saw an accident. Um, and there was a beautiful young woman who got dragged 50 feet by a truck killed instantly. And he envisions her in color, 
uh, dead on the on the ground. It's like, very, like pretty it's fucking scene. grisly, right? Like yeah, I was pretty taken aback actually by how unsparing they were about that. It's it kind of showed to me in that specific shot, uh, like in house, Obayashi really like he labored in the grossness of a lot of that. Excuse me. There's the piano scene and all sorts of dismemberment and blood everywhere. In this movie, it's like it's not a bloody story. It's occasionally mature, but it's not bloody. And in this one scene, it's very like pretty gross. She's laying there dead on the ground and he envisions it and it like it swaps between color and black and white. And then at the end, he rushes out to get to his bike to see if it was her to confirm his fears. And there she is. She's like dismounting her bike in the rain. She's taking her leather jacket out. Um, and, you know, the, ostensibly it ends on a happy note. And I'm assuming that from like our, our shared collective point of view after this discussion is that it doesn't matter. Like the movie is not trying to ask you to guess or to leave you hanging about whether like she did die and he's imagining her back or if uh, like, you know, he broke finally and has is just hallucinating her alive. Um, but I want to present like if you literally had to choose a 50 50 choice about whether you think this character cannot if if there's I know that this betrays everything we've said up to this point. I'm just curious. Do you think that Miyoko lived or died at the end of the movie if you had to choose? Uh, do you want me to go first? Guys, you can go first. I, I shouldn't talk so much. I, mean, she, I think she lived. I don't think this is a weird wow. out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, she's she's dead, man. Yeah, dude. Uh, like, inarguably. The whole movie's about how she was, like, kind of a, a figment slash uh, dream um, idealization from the start. I, personally, just because I wanted so much out of the thing, I'm team lived. I mean, this is a. I'm gro- I'm groaning. Man, well, this uh, is bit... go ahead. This is why I said, like, the shared collective point of this podcast has been like that blur of reality to fa- to 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 desire to fantasy to fiction is like kind of the point, right? Like the whole character, as Harry just said, is sort of questionably real throughout, uh, because she exists as a as like an imposition of his, of, of what he wants out of his life. Um, but again, I didn't think we'd get this interesting, uh, an array of answers. We've literally got 50, 50 between she di- whether she died or whether she lived. Yeah. And I think the big takeaway from that is, uh, Aaron's favorite movie inception owes this movie or rather, uh, yeah, <laughs> this movie quite movie. a lot. Stop that. Makes you think, huh? Uh, okay. So the reason why I think it, it kind of matters is that I, to me, uh, a lot of the the power of this movie, the movie, the the thing that makes it one of my favorite movies ever, is the very like uh, Wong Kar Wai in the mood for love, like yearning behind the idea that you can't have it, right? Like they were a moment together, they were a moment together, and that is impossible to to attain into like forever. At, at the end of this movie, a very Obayashi um, framework happens where she takes a picture of them together. And he asks her what happens after the picture's taken. And she says, don't think about that. And then he says, and the wind will blow and it will be summer. And summer is where my heart is. Uh, that's for one, that's maybe my favorite last line of a movie period. Uh, and summer is where my heart is. It's just like, wow, that really, really got Beautiful. me. Uh, yeah. Sorry to be so uh, melodramatic about it. But um, so to me, the, the idea was like now, 
after this tragedy, he he at least knows that the coming of age was coming to realize finally what he really wants in life and to know that it's not achievable because she's gone, right? Like the the goneness of who she is is fundamental to me, to that story and, and that character. Um it is that it's something that has that happened once or is always happening somewhere else or away. And that element of, of sadness and yearning being itself the sort of new understanding of what it means to be a person and what it means to know who you are was very important to me. And I guess that's why it's important to me that, that this scene happens, that she really is gone and that he really can only recollect her this in this mediated fashion uh and, and that like the the most alive that he can he can feel now is recalling how it felt to be that experience with her um but i am i'm interested in knowing uh other sort of interpretations well i don't know that i have another interpretation of like my reasoning for whether or not she lived or died i think it's just like nine-year-old happy jason saying like they were happy i want them to be happy i want them to be alive like i am alive uh and and in love, like like I wish I was in love. Uh, but the like right after the scene where she reappears and ostensibly is you know living or dead, uh, he is seen standing in a beautiful verdant field, uh, looking at the camera and saying, "After the picture is taken, then what?" Uh, and it's revealed that she is like she's staged a camera on top of a motorcycle and has. Uh, and is staging a shot for both of the, like she's timed out a shot for both of them to be in. And that's where that, uh, and summer is where my heart is short line, uh, comes from and, and ends the movie. Uh, and that really just like, it sums up to me the, like the end of the film, the very final couple shots and sums up the, like the whole point of the movie, which I've already gone over uh, again and again, at least in my view that like the, your desires are externalized and, or at least his desires are externalized and hers are externalized. And in that space uh, between the two, that's where like the fantasy is created. That's where like the shared understanding, the shared view of, of the world that they're being in, that, that they want to be in is it becomes one, right? It becomes reality. And that's what Obayashi's directing and editing style says is that like these two things are the same. Don't try to separate them. They are both inherently human. They both belong. There's space for them both. Uh, God, it just made me want to watch way more of his movies. Uh, yeah, really well said. Um, that's maybe a good note to to transition out of. Um, but I, you know, I never knew how to stop. Um, I I would just like add that. Um, that's that's really uh, shit. I might be losing my thought here. Um, I think that that ending it specifically before the camera clicks is really important to me. Um, and just the the idea that like all of this craft and story and character leading up to that point where he can make that that point to say like he's revealed to us sort of what we want just like he revealed to co what he wants in this sort of very metamodernist sense is that like oh like the distance between people is that we want to be this one thing we want to be like this experience we want to have this notion and actually like it's more complicated than that. We can't always have that, what we want. Uh, and there, the sense that, that like love is what that is, is this, this uh, idea that you could attain in a more permanent sense, um, a version of life that is idealized. 
but even that is not true because it's mediated because it's something that is only ever a story and that human beings are so fundamentally um poised to need stories or want stories of themselves in their lives but we're always doomed to have those stories come apart at the seams right because that's not what reality is because you have to eventually go to the bathhouse or the bathroom or whatever it is you got to show your ass exactly <laughs> Uh, I am very interested in pivoting now to a segment where we go over some notes that Cody may have taken uh, during the film, and uh, and we call this uh, this section Cody's Noties. Cody's Noties. Hiya, I'm Cody. Uh, I have some noties. Uh, the so I've got a big a big old thing that also kind of doubles as a recommendation. Uh, it will be. Slightly long-winded, uh, just as a forewarning. Um, so apologies for that. I know we're already sort of running long. Um, I'm on this if, podcast, so, you know. <laughs> um, if anybody has anything that they want to jump in with, feel free to just interrupt me, because my nose will be in my noties. Um, at uh, some point in between the first and second acts, um, we're still sort of getting acclimated to the existence of this island. Uh, they say, if not by the actual inland sea name um they at least refer to the existence of an inland sea and hearing this made me think of a um a movie that i've wanted to see for quite a while that's been on my watch list for a while now called the inland sea it's a 1991 um american travel documentary uh about the travelogue 20 years prior put together by donald ritchie um and i'm still sort of i don't know enough about him to give him his due credit. He is uh, an American-born uh, writer. He passed away in 2013. He is most famous for having written um, a lot about uh, Japan and Japanese cinema to sort of uh, contextualize his career um, for specifically the those of us um, talking about this movie right now and maybe some listeners as well. Uh, Richie wrote the English subtitles or uh, Kurosawa's um, Throne of Blood, Red Beer, uh, Kajimusha, Whoa. and Dreams. And um, the uh, Criterion Collection, shout out to Criterion, Richie provided commentaries for, um, for some Ozu works, uh, as well as um, uh, some others, and Kurosawa films as well, Drunken Angel, Rashomon, uh, The Bad Sleep Well, um, and some others, um, not to just list those. So uh, I got thinking about that, and um, following me watching this movie uh, a handful of hours ago i logged on to the criterion channel and gave the inland sea a watch uh, because it is uh, an hour long which uh, really speaks to my soul <laughs> um yeah. and i just i wanted to see if i would get anything out of it um so i went in really just with the mindset of not comparing and contrasting but just to to stay with this island a little bit longer and see um you know at least uh, as far as the real world goes, um, you know, almost 30 years ago, uh, it offers the same type of romanticism that uh, his motorbike Kerr Island offers. Um, it's uh, the islands in, uh, you kind of hidden amongst this, uh, this water passageway. It's a portrait of another time um, in real life, more so generate, general, excuse me, generationally, um, as uh, Richie sort of paints it, rather than a focus on uh, like differences of self or or like regionally, at least as far as the diegetic world of his motorbike island goes. Um, 
it's uh, it's more of a the islands are more of pit stops. Um, that's kind of how they're they're painted. The resources of these islands are used by the by the grander, larger outside world, um, and the uh, the sea is itself more of uh, a river that is you know, used for passageways to get from from one uh, area to another. So this is really you know the islands are more so just like gas stations um, for and like places for tourists to go. Uh, there's a certain uh, there's a motif of '50s nostalgia in uh, in this documentary that um, that the movie also uh, offers. Um, you know that that sort of renegade James Deanness that we've that we we talked about. Um, this time they, I mean they they talk about just '50s culture. Audrey Hepburn, Frank Sinatra, um, people, inhabitants of the island, reminiscing about these things. Um, so it really is sort of like a place out of time. Um, I'm really just like quick hit uh, notes here. The uh, inhabitants of the island have sort of self-imposed limits um, and consumption uh, um, of like how they want to take in the outside world. They're very like they're they're inhabiting the these islands as a very distinct choice. It's not that they don't want to get out um, or you know they 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 want to they want to stay put. There there aren't the same sort of desires to leave or, or feeling trapped that we get from Miyoko in the movie. Um, one funny thing, the uh, religious that's practiced uh, throughout the island posits nature as God, um, and they specifically like give an example of the wind for a period of time uh, taking up that role, um, which was a nice uh, parallel. Uh, I don't know. I, I ramble a lot here, but the, um, the last sort of thing I'll offer, Richie has his own thought about traveling. He observes uh, travelers going to these islands and they have this mindset of picking someone up and a quote that he has is it's not that they want sex so much uh as it is that they want something to fill the emptiness that their very freedom has created uh the second half of which really jumped out to me because uh, uh Fiumi, um very point blank addresses uh ko's freedom in the movie uh in a scene that i loved um but it, in any case um this is a lot of nothing here but uh, it's it's a very tranquil and mostly omnisciently observant glimpse at what life on these islands uh, was like, I guess, in 1971, and then looking back at it from a 1991 lens, and, you know, we're so far removed from it now, uh, like, that's even, we're even more removed from it uh, than that. Um, there's less ego that goes into it. Um, you know, Richie inserts himself not as much as I would have anticipated him to. Um, so I think it is maybe more tolerable for those who uh, are fearful of the uh, white American sort of inserting himself in that regard. Uh, so if anybody wants to remove themselves from this quarantine world for an hour, uh, I would give that uh, a solid recommend. It's a nice, uh, it's a nice escape. Wow, nice. That was uh, that was Cody's noties and a recommendation. Wow, a twofer, uh, a rare twofer, a twofer, a double wide Cody's noties. What was that movie called again? That uh, that film. Yeah, the the inland sea. Um, I would be. I, I'm flirting with the idea of reading the travelogue. However, I think it's just a book. Um, you should inland see it. Fuck you, Harry. I was gonna mm. do that. You rose. Uh, you raised your hand. That was your mistake. You should have just shouted it out like an asshole. <laughs> um, what uh, else would people? <laughs> what else would people recommend? Um, just to get away from my voice. Uh, I mean, I mentioned earlier, I think Wild at Heart's a good recommendation. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's playing a slightly different stuff. It's maybe a little hard to watch at times. Um, you know, it's, it's hey, a, that movie's it's really, really good. 
it is really, really good. I think it struck me near the bottom of Lynch's filmography, but that is a mighty fine filmography to be stuck in the middle of. So, uh, yeah, Wild Heart's very good. I would see that. I would watch uh, Twin Peaks, first season in particular. You can't do two uh, Lynch, man. I, can I, I had the return on my list, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Never mind. We'll do three Lynch. Uh, yeah, I, I would recommend those. <laughs> I knew That's I was going to recommend it. Episode. I, I knew I was going to recommend it when I, when uh Co pulls up to a stoplight and it's the only thing that's been in color so far in the film. And it's literally, you could probably take a couple shots of there where like he's got his helmet on and just replace them with scenes from the first or yeah, scenes from the first season of twin peaks and just assume that they're James Hurley. Yeah. Uh, that, yes. that specific shot you're referencing is just the shot where Laura is on the back of James's motorcycle at the stoplight. And then she runs off. I was going to yeah. say it's, it's ironic that the, the part the scenes in Twin Peaks that are the most like this film are also the scenes from uh, season two that everybody says to skip where J- James like fucks off into the wilderness for like, you That's know, 10 point. episodes straight. And it's like that is the most similar to this film and also probably the second worst part of Twin Peaks in general. But uh, yeah. anyway, What's the first worst part? Um, It's the part in season two where I am for getting names is uh good question uh give me one second and i will look that up when when big ed's uh wife gets super strong yes when she goes back to high school and gets super strong i forgot her name so i was uh i was like it's not norma it's who the fuck is it Um, i feel bad that i i feel absolutely terrible that i also forgot her name Uh, she is great up until uh that that bit when it's not her it's it's everything else happening in that show at that point but that is uh very cringeworthy in my opinion have you guys seen that meme where somebody took asuka from uh neon genesis uh when she has the eye patch and then she said do you know what i was up all night doing i was creating the world's first ever silent drape runner it's a very funny meme uh sorry hody go ahead no, you're good. Um, I can't really because I haven't seen that, but that sounds dope. Uh, solid recommend. Um, uh, I wanted to get this in. We've danced around this a little bit. Um, I want to make it perfectly clear that th- this movie is very hard to find. Um, his motorbike, Her Island, is not. Um, we all watched the same download of it that we found off of someone on film Twitter. Uh, I encourage anyone listening to this, uh, if anybody listening to this, uh, and is interested in watching this to seek it out under the assumption that you won't be able to find it in a nice, clean and tidy way, like renting yeah, definitely it Definitely don't. Yeah, iTunes or something. Yeah, don't give your money. Don't just reach out to us because we won't give it to you. Right. Will will not, that would be, would that would be a very bad that. thing to do. Um, For the yeah, love sh- of God, do not email trylovepodcast at gmail.com requesting a link or a copy of this film. We we simply won't be able to provide it. Um, again, that's trylovepodcast at gmail.com. Do not send an email to that address. And n- just to close all, close all the doors here, do not uh, DM us on Twitter uh, asking the same question. Do not DM anybody uh, associated with the podcast individually. Um, and just to make sure the, the handles that you can avoid will be given out again at the end of the episode. Yeah, and uh, uh, breaking through this for a second, it is also on YouTube. It's only 360p. Uh, but yeah, fuck you know, that. yeah, I know. But if you know, you don't want to download a two gigabyte file. It, it is on YouTube. I encourage people to watch films in whatever manner they can. Three three sixty p, and yet still no peen. 
Um, I, hey, I want to recommend. I want to recommend Wong Kar Wai's "In the Mood for Love." I watched that uh, right yes. before the, the quarantine hit. Uh, it hit some similar notes of the fundamentalness of yearning to sort of the human experience, uh, which is my favorite shit. Um, so I, I also think that that is a near perfect movie um, and love it very much. Um, I mentioned Seijin Suzuki's Tokyo Drifter. I think I've recommended that movie like 16 times on this podcast. Uh, you should watch it. It fucking rules. Um, I've also recommended Scorpio Rising a lot. Kenneth Anger's short film. You should watch that. It also rules. Um, some good metamodernist writers are Zadie Smith and Haruki Murakami. Haruki Murakami maybe hits a lot of the similar notes, uh, including his weird relationship with women, um, which often sucks. So maybe don't you know, take a caveat with that, but that's what I'm saying. Uh, I've said more than enough in the last 20 minutes, but I want to second Harry's uh, recommends of In the Mood for Love and Tokyo Drifter. Beautiful. Then this has been an episode of Try Love about uh, the 1986 film His Motorbike, Her Island, directed by Nobuhiko Obayashi. Again, recently passed April 10th, 2020. Uh, he was 82 years old, and Drifted I can't wait to dig into yeah, I can't wait to dig into more We're of his filmography. And I can't wait until uh, quarantine breaks and hopefully they're, they're still able to schedule a Haosu showing at the Trilon. It's going to be it's going to mean a lot more, I think, having known a little bit more of Nobuhiko Obayashi's uh, filmography. So that's been our episode about his motorbike, Her Island. Uh, again, you can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find them, sorry, them being Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema across all social media platforms. Uh, my name is Jason. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron. And you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. Where are we heading today? Looking for the wind and then taking a nap. <laughs>